Hello from all of us at From the Front Row. My name is Steve Sonye, and today I will be hosting our program. I am delighted to welcome Becky Node and Chris Doyle from the HIV Alliance in Eugene, Oregon. The HIV Alliance was founded in 1994 to support people living with HIV and AIDS. The core organizational arms center around care, prevention, education, and community engagement. Becky currently serves as the Prevention and Education Manager. Chris is the current Needle Exchange Coordinator. Thanks for chatting with us today, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Becky, let's start with your path. Uh, what were the circumstances that motivated you to work with the HIV Alliance? And then can you kind of give us some background into your current position as well? So um, in 2006, I graduated from the Metropolitan State College of Denver with my bachelor's degree in social work and kind of some family background in addiction and mental illness. Mental illness was what pushed me towards the path to getting a degree in social work with some personal experience with that. So I graduated in 2006 and I started working um, at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless as a clinical case manager. And at that point, I kind of got a really good introduction into working with folks who are chronically homeless, who struggle with mental illness and addiction. And I also found that a lot of my clients were living with HIV and that these clients were still facing a great amount of stigma. You know, even in, by that point, it was like 2008, and there were so many people who misunderstand HIV and still have beliefs like we held in the 80s, you know, that you touch somebody, you're going to get HIV, or if you use the same dishes, or you use the bathroom after them. And it was just really shocking to me that so many people still had those misconceptions. So then a position came open at um, the Northern Colorado AIDS Project in Colorado, and I started working as a case manager there. And uh, when I started working there, I just really found my passion advocating for folks who are living with HIV and making sure that they're getting the proper medical care. And then uh, when my husband and I moved out here to Oregon, I was lucky enough to find a position as a care coordinator here at the HIV Alliance. Um, which is where I started out working with folks living with HIV and just making sure that they have insurance and all of the other things that they need. And then our prevention department at the same time was growing and growing and growing. Now we serve 13 counties out here in Oregon. And so they split the prevention management position into two. I stepped into my role here to manage the Northern uh, prevention programs. And then we have another prevention manager who manages the Southern programs. So that's kind of how I got here. And Chris, kind of that same question to you as well. What were the circumstances that motivated you to work for the HIV Alliance and kind of a background into your position as a past volunteer? I'm really excited to kind of hear about the program's progression as a whole. Okay. Uh, harm reduction has always been kind of a part of my life. Many, many people that I love very dearly died from overdose before the age of 25. So when I decided to settle down in Eugene, Oregon, uh, HIV Alliance was actually the only needle exchange and Narcan distribution in Eugene. Earlier in the year, I normally always carry Narcan and didn't have any at the time. And I was in a Fred Meyer and a woman overdosed in the bathroom and they wouldn't let me help her. And uh, right. if I had my Narcan with me, 
I would have been able to help her right when I found her. And so that motivated me to find an agency that distributed Narcan. And I've kind of always like been all around the country and have been to many needle exchanges and have volunteered at other needle exchanges and frequented other needle exchanges before. So it was important to me to give my time to a harm reduction program because they've helped me so much. So that's kind of what, that's what brought me to the HIV Alliance. And as a past volunteer, oh my gosh, like I started volunteering out in Glenwood, actually. The past needle exchange coordinator, Chelsea Swift, she was ready to move on to Cahoots because she'd been working both jobs part-time and how exhausting is that? She let me know that the position was opening and I interviewed and got the job. At first, it was a part-time position and I was just doing the five five day a week, one location a day exchanges. And through a series of hard work from everybody at the agency and myself, we've been able to expand exponentially the needle exchange. Um, I was also able to create a street outreach program. We have many, many locations now. Uh, just in Lane County, we have Blair, which is our Whitaker location that we're at twice a week. We have the Springfield location, which is once a week. Uh, we do the needle exchange twice a week at the office, Tuesdays and Fridays. We have Cottage Grove once a week, and we go out to Highway 99 uh, Home Center once a week as well, along with all the other counties, which I personally do not do. I can't be everywhere all at once, even <laughs> though I wish I was. So it has uh, expanded hugely. Our Narcan program itself, in the last month, we've had uh, 25 reversals, wow. um, self-reported reversals from our clients, and that's in Lane County, and then all the counties have had 40 reversals just in the last month, and then altogether about 910 since we started our program in 2016. So. Not only have we been able to expand uh, our needle exchange program, we've also been able to greatly expand our Narcan program. Along those data points, too, I'm just wondering in the back of my head, when I was working back there, it was kind of a one for one for the most part, but it was a limit of how many needles you could get at that time. Have you guys kind of stayed with that policy or where does that shape up now? And then about how many needles are you exchanging if you've got that data? So we're, um, we do uh, strictly a one-for-one one, um, because of increased funding opportunities. We were kind of able to take off that um, maximum number that people can get. Um, you know, we're not allowed to use any federal funding to purchase needles. Mm -hmm. We can use federal funding to purchase the other things around it, but just not the specific needles. Um, so we always have to kind of hustle to find funding for our actual needles. And because we've done a really, our development department's done a really great job of that, we could take off a maximum cap, and it's just a straight one-for-one one exchange right now. We're getting close to taking in a million needles a year. Yeah. That's tremendously exciting. I remember seeing the data points back in the day and, you know, being frustrated when a cap did exist, but did understand the funding component of it. It is something that we have to take into account with this situation, but that's, that's incredible to hear the progress kind of building off of that, oh, yeah. 
there was uh, this recent Eugene Weekly column that I was reading through, and it's highlighting, you know, the accomplishments of the HIV Alliance over the past 25 years. For both of you guys, what do you think are the most exciting resources that the Alliance brings to the community? I would say that right now, considering, um, you know, the opiate epidemic that has been kind of raging across America for the past decade now, our Narcan naloxone program, getting that out into the community is really, really exciting. And the reason that I think that's so important is because we know that over 90% of overdose reversals are going to come from people who are using drugs together or from family and friends. And so getting that Narcan into the hands of folks who are using is so, so important. Also for me, I think one of the really exciting resources that we offer is just being a safe place, safe place for a really diverse group of folks. Um, our clients at Needle Exchange know that they can come and they can utilize our service without judgment or, you know, any kind of stigma attached to it. And that's also true for the LGBTQ2S plus community that we serve. You know, we just open our arms wide and ask folks to come here and we provide a safe space for them. So I think that, you know, Narcan's really exciting being a safe place and also just the syringe exchange program because that's, you know, the most cost effective and easiest way to prevent the spread of new infections is to get clean needles out there. Would you add anything to that, Chris? Or? No, um, no I, I would agree uh, with Becky. I think that our Narcan program is the most exciting program that we have. Uh, just because I see the results of that every day through my clients, they are taking steps themselves because they have they have access to Narcan so easily to the point where they're doing high risk drugs like heroin in groups and being proactive and making sure that a couple of people wait and have Narcan ready. Through our program, they're able to have those resources to be able to do that and the information. And I see people every single day that should have been dead that aren't because of it. Yeah, I think that's a very incredible comment to make on it. I was chatting with someone from the Philadelphia Department of Public Health previously, and one of their comments that I really enjoyed was, you know, you have this idea of, I want this person to, you know, be in a better spot or feel more comfortable or achieve their goals with regards to recovery, but it's incredibly difficult to do that if you are not alive. You know, in the hands of folks, especially with the numbers that you're saying, is, is purely life-saving as an initiative. Yeah. I think that's, that's a, a, a very good point to hit on. And kind of going with that, what do you guys think helps the Alliance to succeed in its mission as a nonprofit organization? Chris said our volunteers, and I would definitely agree with that. We have a really amazing volunteer base. And, you know, I think any nonprofit without a really great volunteer base is kind of dead in the water. Our volunteers contribute an incredible amount of time and resources to our agency. Also, though, I think that as the Alliance, we are really good at, we understand our mission and we know our mission and we have a really amazing group of people who are passionate about our mission and what we do. And we understand that we are doing life-saving work and that we are one of the few agencies in many of the areas that we serve that do this kind of work. And so, you know, we're excited to do it and we want to do it and that makes us really passionate um, and I think that passion really helps drive us as an organization. Um, also Renee Yandel, our oh, yeah. executive director, mm -hmm. I, I can't say 
about her. She's an amazing, amazing woman. Um, she's constantly working to find um, funding to bring innovative programming. She's always right on top of you know what's happening in the heart, a wider harm reduction community. And she is incredibly dedicated to the clients that we serve and her. So her leadership is definitely really, really important also. Do you want to talk about who's grown this nonprofit? Talk about Renee. She's amazing. Yeah. And also just a quick comment about Renee. Um, she, Renee, started about 20 years ago as a volunteer and has worked her way up through the organization, through all of the different departments to be our executive director and I think that's part of what makes her really good is that she understands all of the aspects of our organization. So she was right under Glenwood Bridge with everyone else. Yeah, she's been out there with us, you know, passing out needles and doing all of the hard work. Yeah, I think that's big. It's the you know, the the boots on the ground, you know, meeting people where they're at. I think constantly across public health we see that as that's one of the strongest things that we bring together as a community reaching out towards and helping each other. It really helps us to connect, understand, and then you can, you know, relate with how is this position going? Where do we see improvements? That kind of situation too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we're talking about how the Alliance is expanding and all these really exciting situations. You guys recently received a two-year grant to bring syringe exchange services to Salem and Marion County. What are kind of some of the goals that you're hoping to come out of this new initiative? So, yeah, it was a, um, as you said, a two-year grant from uh, Willamette Valley Community Health, which was the coordinated community care organization um, in Marion County at the time. The goal of the initiative, I mean, right now is we started up, we're doing um, one site right now. We're partnering with Arches, which is um, a community organization in Salem that provides services to individuals who are homeless. And that was a really natural partnership for us because a lot of our clients do come from the homeless community in needle exchange. Um, and so right now we're just kind of trying to get the word out and build up capacity for the program so that we can eventually expand outward because Marion County, again, you know, we're the only organization providing this service. The goal is to just get out there, get word out to the communities that need us and let them know that we're there, expand our program to different sites. And also, um, one of the things we really want to focus on is trying to get out into the more rural areas of Marion County, you know, because right now we're in Salem, but there's a lot of people in rural areas that aren't able to travel out to Salem. So expanding into the rural areas is definitely one of our goals. And as always, with all of our programs, we do have that initial two-year startup grant, but continuing funding for it is always something that we have to keep in mind because we don't want to bring this really great service to the community and then two years later, you know, have to take it away because we don't have any funding for it. Also, we're always looking to build up um, support around our programs, community support. And so we've been working to do a lot of community education um, to let them know, you know, what harm reduction is, what syringe exchange is, and kind of trying to dispel the notion that we're promoting drug abuse and crime in the neighborhoods that we're serving with this exchange. So just continuing to build up that community sort support is always a goal that we have. Within that too, I'm thinking about Iowa is a very rural state comparatively to Oregon, but you're talking about parts of Oregon that are rural and you're trying to meet those challenges. What are some uh, objectives or, or strategies that you're coming up with when you're planning out these ideas? Or what's being talked about, how to reach 
rural communities with syringe services programs or outreach services. When you're moving into a rural community, there's a lot of things that you have to consider. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important things that you have to take into mind is that rural communities tend to be very small and tight-knit, right? Oh, yeah. So if you're going in for some kind of a medical service, for example, your cousin might be the person registering you at the front desk and checking you in. So just keeping in mind that these communities are very tight-knit and that it's hard to seek services without everybody knowing that you're seeking this service. That and also the fact that even if you do go into a rural area, there's still going to be a large part of that rural area who can't get to you. So really looking into the rural community, trying to build community support around it, and asking that community, what is it that you need and how can we help you? You know, we don't ever want to just like bomb into a place and drop our syringe exchange on them. We want to try to build support and find out what the community needs and where they see that this service could go and where it could fit into. In some of the more rural counties, for example, down in um, southern Oregon, like in Coos and Curry County, uh, we do it in partnership with um, a doctor's office, right? Mm -hmm. So they lend us a room that we can go into. Anybody could be going to the doctor, right? And they don't have to necessarily know what service they're there for um, or at different places like fire departments. So I think just really trying to um, understand the unique needs of those rural counties and where you can place the service in that community so that it's accessible for folks, but still a confidential service. With that too, you know, we know that HIV and AIDS, like you're talking about impacts mental health, you know, how you interact with your community, the willingness to get tested and receive care. And it's all kind of hinging on the, the stigma behind it. Uh, what are some steps that public health professionals or organizations can kind of take to combat stigma, whether it's in a rural community, an urban or a suburban community? Uh, education, 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 education. You just really have to get out there and get the word out about, you know, when we're talking about HIV AIDS, as I was alluding to earlier, there is still so many misconceptions around it. And it's just, I'll never stop being shocked by some of the misconceptions that people have, mm -hmm. but getting our education out there, letting people know what HIV is, what AIDS is, understanding how it is transmitted, and also how you can protect yourself from it. Um, also, one of the programs that we have here is called our Positively Speaking Program. Mm -hmm. And so we have folks who are living with HIV and AIDS or those who have been affected by HIV and AIDS go out and speak to different organizations and schools, which really puts a personal face on the disease and also helps to build empathy. And then I think it's the same with our prevention programs and our harm reduction programs is getting the community support, is educating them about what harm reduction is, what is the science behind it? What does the research say? And just trying to help folks understand that what we're trying to do is stop the spread of disease and that that impacts the wider community and protects the wider community also. And also, you know, just understanding that there are some folks who are never going to I think it's important. understand. Yeah, for them yeah. to, like, education is really important. And these are our human beings. And no matter where they are in their life, it's important to remember that they don't necessarily, they don't deserve to be left in a gutter because they can't get help. They're everybody's mom, dad, sister, brother. And at the end of the day, they're just another human being that needs help. And that some sometimes there's just going to be people that that's the way that they are forever. 
trying to let people know like the core of harm reduction is that there's always going to be people in the community that have high risk behavior and breaking that down for them in a way they can understand, uh, putting yourself out there to answer questions and not be afraid of what people have to say and understanding that the people that are in the community outside of harm reduction uh, have a view for that view for a reason. And I find that most people are just they just want the best for their community and trying to meet them where they're at is also super important answering questions and helping them understand in a way that they can understand that we're trying to do what's best for the community at large and that addiction doesn't necessarily last forever and what we're doing makes it so the consequences aren't necessarily forever either right and i think that's very crucial to hit on is that this is, it, it can be a temporary situation. It can, you know, people fall into a rut or, you know, bad things can happen, but they don't have to last forever if services or support is available or if uh, you bring a voice to those people who are in need. It doesn't just affect, like, I think that people have this idea of drug addiction mm -hmm. where the first thing that they think of is that scabbed person screaming having a breakdown on the street you know that's not it 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 can be it but it ranges all the way from like people that are super well off to people that are in the gutter and everywhere in between it has no bias <laughs> yeah 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 it's definitely an indiscriminate you know unfortunate situation that comes about that folks often don't have the capacity to combat on their own and it is a, a place of you know strength and courage that it takes getting those steps for recovery and then also you know relying on the community for help too as well and recognizing that yeah just get it out there like part of um fighting stigma is stopping stop hiding it part of our community we need to deal with it these people don't deserve to be left in the shadows so part of fighting the stigma is just putting it out front for everyone to see in a positive way. Well, I was moving out to Iowa, I stopped in Denver and I, I saw this billboard that struck me, which was uh, U equals U. Yeah, so U equals U is undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, and this came out of a series of very large studies from the Centers for Disease Control. When somebody is living with HIV, what happens is that the HIV attaches to a person's T cells or CD4 cells mm -hmm. and basically destroys them and uses them to replicate itself. So what happens is a person who has HIV, their CD4 count is going to drop very drastically and the amount of virus that is in their blood is going to increase very rapidly. The problem with that is that your CD4 cells kind of act as the generals of your immune system and they rally the rest of your immune system to fight off infections. So when the HIV destroys that, your ability to fight off infections is very, very low. So what undetectable means is that somebody who is on HIV treatment with um, antiretrovirals mm 
-hmm. we won't be able to find any of the virus in their blood, meaning that they have an undetectable viral load. What we know now after this series of studies from the Centers for Disease Control is that if somebody has an undetectable viral load, they are not able to transmit HIV to anybody else. So if somebody who has HIV is on medication, is undetectable in their viral load, has sex unprotected with somebody else, mm -hmm. they are not going to transmit HIV. I think what the most important effect of this is that the impact it's having on the lives of folks who have been living with HIV for a very long time. You know, we have clients here at the Alliance who became infected at the beginning of the pandemic in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. and have lived through times where having sex while you have HIV was a criminal act, right? If you had HIV and you had sex knowingly having HIV, you could go to prison for a very, very long time. For example, when I was still doing care coordination, I was sitting down with a client. He was telling me that he had just started a new relationship and that he was having some difficulty navigating the physical aspects of it because he was so worried about transmitting HIV. And I discussed the concept of U equals U with him. And he looked at me and he said, so you're telling me that I can have an actual normal physical relationship and not have to worry about it anymore? And I said, yes. And he burst into tears and cried literally for 10 minutes because of the relief that that brought him. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of people think about, you know, being in a relationship or being married or having a partner and having it be legal for you to have any kind of a physical relationship with them or how living with HIV can impact the relationships that you have in your life. But this is an absolutely immense step in HIV treatment and HIV care, being able to tell folks, you're not a ticking time bomb anymore. You're not going to transmit HIV as long as you stay on your medications and take care of yourself. Good incentive, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing to remember with this, though, and that I, I try to remind folks of is that this is, we're talking about HIV here, right? There's still a lot of other STIs out there, too, that are transmittable and that we still need to worry about. So, you know, condom use, if you're in non-monogamous relationships, condom use is still very important. And I remember seeing the billboard and thinking, like, you see a lot of transformational stuff in media, but just the impact from both a clinical or a social outreach standpoint, being able to lift that weight must feel wonderful for, for both parties involved. But like you're talking about that sigh of relief, that, you know, that overwhelming emotion of, you know, I don't have to feel like this is something I'm concerned about on a daily basis or whenever I'm talking to someone who I'm interested in, that's got to feel um, yeah. incredible. Nothing short of it. Yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty um, major, major development in, in the field. Kind of, you know, building all this up, you know, we're seeing these big changes coming up in the future for your organization and for your guys' positions as a whole and, and, and for the field too. What do you think is the most pressing issue in your field right now? Overdose! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, if we're thinking about harm reduction, I have to agree with Chris. It's, it's, it's overdose because the opiate epidemic that is still going on, that's really kind of decimated very rural areas of America, 
And also, um, we're starting to see that uh, fentanyl, fentanyl is an opiate medication, and it, uh, fentanyl is a thousand times more powerful than heroin. And so we're seeing that fentanyl is starting to pop up in heroin. It's being added to methamphetamine. It's just it's showing up all over the place. And the problem with that is that people are getting drugs. They don't know that fentanyl has been added to it. And so they're using what they consider to be a regular dose and they're overdosing because it has fentanyl in it. It's extremely, extremely deadly and it's just, it's all over the place. That it makes it even more urgent for us to move that naloxone out into the community and, and educate, educate, educate our clients about this. I was um, Education I yeah. think, is the second most pressing issue mm-hmm. for harm reduction. Um, a lot of a lot of my time is spent uh, educating my clients on on fentanyl. And for a while, we had uh, this wonderful tool, fentanyl test strips. And people, my clients, were going out and testing everything that they could get their hands on. And it was, we're seeing in the news, you know, all over the country, college student goes and does coke one night and dies of a fentanyl overdose. I've heard it be in the acid. Um, It's in everything. Like, it's, I, I was in Target and found a pill on the ground, flipped it up, and I took it with me and I tested it. And it turned out it was a pressed pill, just like, it looked just like an oxycodone, like same color, same pressed markings, same everything. And it surprised, it didn't surprise me, but it surprised me because it tested positive like almost immediately for fentanyl. And people don't, clients don't understand that just because it looks like say, here's a really great example, a Xanax uh, doesn't mean it is a Xanax. You can get presses from anywhere uh, on the internet and educating people about how to use naloxone the proper way. Um, A lot of of education I do around naloxone is teaching people how to administer it, the different ways to administer it, making sure that they know how it works in the brain so they understand what's happening they're basically suffocating to death you need to make sure that you get air into their body otherwise all this work means nothing (laughs) brain damage starts after six minutes so education is so so important um and then there's a lot of misinformation going around about fentanyl too but yeah just really getting the naloxone out there educating about overdose and just making sure that people understand what's going on and that, you know, the danger is out there and that fentanyl can look like anything. Mm-hmm. So it, it is circling back to that awareness component, you know, of education, education, education. You need to be aware of, you know, what are the signs of an overdose when you're being careful about, you know, what pills or what is around, you know, those kind of aspects, it seems, are very crucial when you're talking about how overdose really needs to be what we're focusing on now as a uh, public health community dealing with the opioid epidemic. Absolutely, yeah. And this is kind of our our flagship question for the podcast, and this is for both of you. What is one thing that you thought you knew but were later wrong about? Uh, I thought it would be easier to work through the bureaucracy than it is. (laughs) 
Oh, I, that's a hard question. Um, I think that for me, like when I was first starting out in the field, I think one of the hardest things that I've had to learn is that not everybody wants to get better. Um, not everybody wants to move out of addiction right away. Not everybody wants to stop risky behaviors right away. And that I guess I kind of thought, you know, if we just had the resources available and if people understood X, Y, or Z, that that would help them move out of addiction, you know, just right away. Learning that it's much more of a process than that and that it takes a long time to make, you know, really substantial life changes that, um, you know, while more resources is always better, you know, just throwing more money or more resources at things doesn't always fix them and make them better. And it's really important to understand more what motivates people, what led them to addiction, and different things like that. Like our chief of police said, you can't arrest your way out of this one. Yeah, exactly. I guess, too, that one thing that I thought that I knew is that a lot of people had a much better understanding of HIV and AIDS and what it is and how you can get it. But like I've said a couple of times, every time, there are so many times I'm completely shocked by the misconceptions and the stigma that still surrounds HIV. It's just really shocking. <laughs> yeah, but it, hammer home, it hammers home the point of needing to educate but then also certainly back to, you know, the, the, the need for you to be able to read the situation, process it, and then ultimately it is that time component too of some people take a little bit longer and it is that idea of, you know, all, throwing all the money at it in the world or trying to arrest your way out of it. Sometimes those aren't the options, even though we wish on paper that it would work out as such. And I think also attached to that is, is the idea that, um, you really have to be willing to work with people for the long haul, mm -hmm. you know, because it does take time to make changes. You know, I just, you know, Chris and I aren't going to go out and give, you know, give needles to someone at exchange one day and the next week be like, oh, what, you're not ready to go to treatment? <laughs> We're not going to serve you today. You know, you have to be with people for the long haul and really, really be dedicated to working through the problem because it's not easy to fix. It is definitely a position of commitment, and it is really wonderful to talk to you two about what your guys' work is like and where you see the field heading, and ultimately, the stuff that you guys are doing on a day-to-day -day basis is, is really incredible. I'd like to thank you guys for coming on our show today. Thank you for your time and your insight. It really is truly appreciated. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Steve Sonier. Our team can be reached by email at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu.